Thank you for joining us for the next hour or two in this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast. In an age of nearly limitless content, we appreciate that you're choosing to take valuable time out of your day to learn more about what is happening in Myanmar. It is vital for this story to continue to be heard by people around the world, and that starts right now with you. Today we're going to have a reasonably informal discussion uh, format for our podcast episode. My guest today is Zach, who has a wealth of knowledge on a variety of different topics related to Myanmar. And our discussion today is predominantly going to focus on the military and strategic realities behind the current conflict, focusing on the Tamador and how they have misrepresented their position, as well as the ethnic armed organizations and the PDF groups strategies and tactics in responding to the military. So, Zach, thank you for coming. Uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself for our audience. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Zachary Abusa, and I'm a professor at the National War College in Washington, D.C., and I've spent 30 years working on uh, insurgencies and political violence in Southeast Asia. Okay, thank you. So let's let's just jump straight in. Um, the Tamado. We have heard for a long time uh, this line of reasoning, this this sort of claim that the Tamador is the second largest military in Southeast Asia following uh, Vietnam and is a particularly efficient and capable military by virtue of the fact that it has spent much of the last six decades in perpetual internal conflict against a range of different enemies in a range of different environments. Since the coup, uh, we've had an opportunity to see the Tamadol's effectiveness uh, in the plains, in the mountains, in the cities. Have they lived up to their own hype? Uh, absolutely not. Um, uh, let me get started and just say the military is probably significantly smaller than uh, the normal estimates. Uh, there. The estimates are usually around 400,000 men. Uh, when you actually remove, take away uh, the headquarters, the medical, the military education, the logistics, uh, the back offices, maintenance, uh, uh, procurement, that reduces the military significantly. When you take out 
uh, some of the Air Force and Naval personnel, uh, you're probably looking at a ground force of a couple hundred thousand troops. Um, And even those are divided between units that are uh, territorially based. Uh, They tend to be uh, less well-armed. They are constrained to a certain region. Uh, They tend to have very little mobility. They do not have very much in the way of air or uh, uh, artillery support. Um, They tend to be very reluctant to leave their area of operation. Most of the fighting is done by uh, the Tatmadaw's uh, notorious light infantry divisions. And there are, you know, around 11, 12 of those LIDs. Uh, they are better armed. Uh, they are mobile. They're not assigned to a certain region of the country. They're constantly uh, being uh, trucked or helicoptered about the country, uh, moving from conflict zone to conflict zone. Uh, they have a horrible reputation for committing human rights abuses, uh, uh, violence against civilians, massacring uh, civilians, raising the villages that we saw in Rakhine against the Rohingya, and of course uh, their predilection for sexual violence and gang rape of women. Um, The LIDs uh, are in an effective fighting force. Uh, you know, they're they're well trained. Uh, they're they're they have better command and control. Uh, they are better equipped. But even still, uh, they have been operating at a tempo since the coup that they are not used to. You know, prior to the coup, the Tatmadaw was, you know famed for their ability to divide and conquer. They would concentrate their forces against one or two ethnic resistance organizations at a time uh, and, you know, at some point negotiate a ceasefire with them when they needed to move or concentrate their forces on the next emerging threat. And this was, uh, you know, 50 years of of this, uh, you know, playing off one ERO against another, uh, cutting uh, temporary ceasefires, but never really entering into a durable political settlement, trying to address core grievances. Now, all of that changed after the coup. Um, You know, here they are fighting a multi-front war against uh, several EROs. There seem to be itching for a new fight in Rakhine against the Arakan army. And of course, their supply lines uh, now are being targeted and they're being targeted and they're having to fight in the Bama heartland. You know, we see the fighting in Segang, the, the dry zone region. Um, never before did they have to worry about fighting in you know, the Burmese majority regions and um, protecting supply lines through them. So I think it's very clear that the light infantry divisions after, you know, a year and a half or more of conflict are operating at a uh, tempo that is unsustainable. Uh, They have been taking casualties. Uh, They have had some desertions. They have lost some troops uh, as prisoners of war. Um, 
but simply it's untenable to make troops operate on uh, a tempo like what they're doing now. It just kind of destroys morale. Um, after three or four months of constant war, uh, military troops tend to lose all battlefield efficacy. And so I, I tend not to think that the uh, Tatmadaw is as well armed or equipped or disciplined as uh, or as large as, as some of the previous estimates. So let's, let's look a little bit at these numbers because I believe it was after the 1988 revolution that the, the military leadership decided for itself upon this target of 500,000 as, as the size of the military. And what we've found is that as they've been boasting that they have, you know, north of 400,000, close to 500,000, depending on, on the source. But many of the battalions that exist, uh, exist on paper. They, they have a name, they have a notional headquarters, they have unit insignia. Uh, what they don't have is actual people in the battalions. So th th there's this large element of, of paper army. Um, so, you, so you're saying that you believe that at the beginning of the coup, uh, the military's actual number was hovering about 400,000, or would you say it's closer to about 350,000? Oh, I would put their number well closer to 300,000. But if you start to remove the number of logistics or uh, in militaries, we often uh, would refer to it as the tooth-to-tail ratio. And a lot of militaries are, are very bloated in terms of their back offices or their headquarters or uh, logistics and things like that. The actual trigger pullers uh, in the Myanmar military was probably closer to around 200,000 uh, people. But I think maybe up to 225,000, but it was much smaller than estimated. I think you really uh, identified the, the problem of ghost soldiers, you know, these units that simply existed on paper and they existed solely for the purpose of corruption. And, you know, the, the Tatmadaw has always been uh, an institution unto itself. It's never allowed civilian oversight even after 2015. And so uh, institutional corruption uh, is part of the culture. It is part of the general officer culture. Uh, it is how uh, they uh, get rich. And so I, I think that even the troops that we see uh, are much less effective because of uh, this endemic corruption. So let's take a moment on that. Um, and, and I don't want to linger too long on this, but I'm sure you have plenty of insights. For those who have never actually been to Myanmar and who did not experience Myanmar prior to the, the what I typically refer to as the faux democracy period uh, under Thein Sein and, and uh, generally 2010 onwards, the stories that you would hear are phenomenal. You you know, the military receive, many of them receive rations of rum, which is a military rum that cannot be bought in, in shops. That's part of their remuneration. Uh, it used to be the case, I don't know if it still is, that the military receive vouchers for petrol, uh, which used to be very strictly controlled and, and uh, vehicle owners would have to record how much petrol they purchased in a petrol logbook in their vehicles. And the military kept a very close lid on it. But because the salaries of the military were so low, any one of a rank sufficient to receive 
you know, marketable quantities of petrol vouchers or of of rum or of any other good that can easily be moved would, uh, by story, uh, frequently be found down on the street corner uh, selling off any of these non-monetary elements of their remuneration to people who, by law, should not have had access to those things in order to make the cash that they needed to survive. The the stories of just press-ganging children and bribing local officials to take uh, street children or orphans and throw them into military custody when they needed to to get their recruitment numbers up are, are rife and coincidentally also a, a crime against humanity. Um, the, the corruption stems from from the highest echelons, but it goes all the way down to to the bottom. And it, it seems to be a matter of sheer survival. Like the, the treatment of the the non-officers, the enlisted men, seems to be unsustainable. It, it doesn't seem to even be possible for them to live if they completely lived within the rules of the military, such is my understanding. So it seems that, um, to add that historical context, all of the military have turned to corruption, uh, if not just to become fat cats, just to survive in, in some cases. Um, yes, the military has clearly always been a path of upward mobility uh, for people entering the Defense Services Academy, which is the military college that, that when you graduate, you have a uh, commission uh, in the military, that is a, a path of of economic advancement for your family. It is an opportunity for graft. It is an opportunity to uh, 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 extort money from from your troops. Uh, the military has their two economic. Uh, uh, holding companies, these two conglomerates that control over a hundred corporations and uh, across the country that, that really have dominated the economy. But the military forces soldiers uh, to buy shares in that uh, those conglomerates each month. It's taken out of their their salary. Um, and you know, I think you're right. What the military can do uh, to uh, kind of deal with the fact that the salaries are very low is that they offer these opportunities for cons- uh, for uh, corruption and they offer opportunities to have sinecure in military-owned corporations uh, when they are retired. Um, they offer opportunities for wives or other family members uh, to gain employment in military-owned companies. Um, and then they can offer all sorts of different uh, subsidies or direct handouts of uh, commodities that, you know, given Myanmar's relative mm-hmm. poverty, uh, are by definition scarce. Yes. And and I do think it's very important to to investigate this line as well because the the military have for a very long time, as you say, been seen as a as a mechanism for um, mobility. The the horrific and I would go so far as to say cult-like treatment of military personnel and their family members, uh, particularly when it comes to the women. The the culture that I've heard tell of regarding, um, you know, women basically being sent off to work as, as de facto domestic servants for higher ranked officers in the hopes of securing promotions for their husbands or brothers or um, of the, the widows of dead soldiers being raffled off to other members of the armed services. It's, it, it's grotesque, but it, it serves to keep everyone 
in the fold. But on the flip side of that coin, for people who come from very impoverished regions in, in Myanmar, and uh, I, I had a friend who was living up in Shan State, and she was telling me of, of poverty of the degree where 5,000 chat would feed a family for a week. By contrast, in Yangon, 5,000 chat would get me a taxi trip to work and back. That would be about it. And the options that many of these people faced in their communities were to become a farmer, to become a monk, or to become a soldier. And it was seen as a way to get employment. I've, I've worked with many soldiers and I've heard very commonly their desire to finish their service, go back to their family farm, start a business, whatever the case may be. Uh, DSA was, was the most sought out institution for a long time. The healthcare system that military and their families are given access to is, is significantly better than the healthcare system the average person is given access to. So a lot of people have joined the military for these reasons. But what I want to ask from that is, what does this tell us about the motivations of the people fighting in the Tamadol? versus the motivations of the people fighting against the Tamadol? That's a, a wonderful question. You know, when you see these attacks, and, and I understand why people enlist in, in the military or uh, get conscripted. And, and even before the coup, we knew that there were fairly high rates of desertion uh, from from the military just because they treat their enlisted personnel so poorly and they're so poorly paid. But, but even still, because of the poverty in the country, a lot of people joined or served in the military. And there was a hope that after their couple-year tour of service that they would uh, be in a reserve or a local militia unit would that would also augment their income. So there were all sorts of financial reasons to uh, uh, serve in the military. Um, but here since the coup, you know, we've seen war, especially in the, the Bama heartland, right? The shelling of villages, uh, the arsoning of 30,000 homes. I mean, it's just incredible the, the, the degree to which the military is going out of their way to terrorize the, the population. And you have to wonder at what point, you know, military units can be brainwashed, they can be indoctrinated, especially when they're fighting outside groups. So if they're up in the border areas against an ERO, they can be told, you know, only we, the Tatmadaw, can hold this country together. Uh, without us, uh, 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 the union of Myanmar would no longer exist. Um, that's got to be very different when you're going in and raising villages and shelling villages uh, that look a hell of a lot like the, the impoverished village you were raised in, inhabited by fellow Bamans. Um, and so I think at some point that that is uh, causing a decline in morale. Um, and, you know, we know that defections to the NUG and to the civil disobedience movement organizations are up. They're starting to happen not just in individuals, ones and twos, but but we've had entire units now um, 
either defect. And there was one case recently where an entire unit just simply disobeyed orders. So, so discipline in the ranks is, is starting to uh, break down. Um, and we also know that you know, there, there have to be desertions. Defections we can measure. Desertions are much harder to, to measure because people are simply uh, disappearing from the ranks and going back to their villages. Um, but all this morale within the force has to be down just because the operational tempo, the, the egregious human rights abuses, uh, and, and everything else that, that the uh, soldiers are being uh, forced to do. Just on that morale, I, I want to raise a, a specific dimension of this because the, the soldiers are not getting their, their, their salaries. We know that MEC, MEHL, the, these two conglomerates that you mentioned previously that the military have shares in, uh, actually failed to pay out the full dividend amount uh, in, I think, the last financial quarter. And any any dividend in 2021, and I don't believe they've paid any dividends. Uh, certainly, so it's even more severe. Uh, um, yeah, it's it's and and those dividends are kind of what allow people in the military to survive, right? You know, it's it's that end of year bonus in a way that 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 puts them into the black. Oh wow. So that and, and does that does that extend all the way down to the enlisted or is that just officers only? Uh, it does extend to the enlisted but but in very small amounts. It's it's the officers that really have and and the senior NCO corps. Okay. So so obviously there will be a lot of dissent um within the ranks, but there's there's one well actually there are two elements. The first I want to discuss is these light infantry divisions. Now the light infantry divisions, um, so there are about 12 of those. Uh, now, in theory, each of the divisions is about 5,000 men divided into 10 500-man battalions, um, which in and of itself is a little bit unusual. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a battalion is meant to be a self-standing fully functioning, effectively independent force. It's meant to take care of its own logistics concerns. It's meant to have transportation, uh, supplies, foods, ammunition. It's meant to operate independently. Certainly in the Swiss system, I know that's how they do it. I believe the Indonesian military operates on a, an independent battalion system as well. 500 fighting men um, without, without a supply train, without their own internal transportation, does that really meet the military definition of a battalion? Uh, no. And I, I think your estimates of the size of the LIDs is, is too large anyway. Uh, but but, but let, let's get back to it. When we're looking at these LIDs as fighting forces, the, the goal is to have them, uh, you know, these independent, as, as you describe, accurately describe them, they're supposed to be pretty independent uh, forces, 500 uh, men ideally. Uh, simply, uh, most are trigger pullers, but they would have some logistics supply. They usually had a, a, an artillery uh, 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 unit attached to them. Um, but they were supposed to be pretty damn autonomous. Uh, the estimates now are that a lot of these 
LIDs are supposed to be, you know, well over 500 men are probably operating at around 300 men. What is not clear, and I, I have not been given a satisfactory answer on this, is, you know, the military can continue to conscript people. That is one of their, their advantages uh, in all of this. Um, even if people hate the military and don't want to be conscripted, they, they still have those coercive powers. Um, but what we don't know is how well the troops are being trained. And, you know, we had a better sense of the pathways into the LIDs from you know, the time of conscription, the training that was involved, but who knows now? Um, are they replenishing those LIDs? Um, one thing that we have seen in the past year is that the military has passed laws and, and tried to force uh, police forces into frontline military duties. They've tried to get some of their t static territorial-based uh, units uh, to engage in more kinetic operations. So I think it's very clear that their manpower uh, is clearly over. I mean, they threatened the Red Cross, the, the Burmese ICRC personnel with frontline service. Um, so desperate, I think, would be an understatement at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah. right. So, but the the point that I want to get to is is their mentality. So, as as grotesque as it is, the light infantry divisions, particularly from from my experience, the twenty second, thirty third, seventy seventh, and ninety ninth divisions, are genuinely meet the standard for psychosis. They they are insane. They are violent. They are brutal for no good reason whatsoever. They seem to just genuinely have a penchant for whole-scale destruction and as much human suffering inflicted as humanly possible. Um, for for the those familiar with World War II history, history the uh, Der Lewanger Brigade of Nazi Germany definitely comes to mind. Um, how are their sort of motivations are they being affected by by defections are we seeing them lose their capacity and their numbers because it seems to me that they don't necessarily need to be paid their mec mehl dividends um they just need to be given free reign to to murder and torture and and rape and burn and all these other things and they will continue to be loyal is, is there any way that we can get under their skin and get them to start walking away uh, yes, you've identified the, the units that are responsible for the most egregious human rights abuses. And, and I would agree with your description that they're, they're simply psychotic. They've, they've been indoctrinated uh, to the point of probable no return. Uh, so have there been some of them captured as POWs? Yes, there have been a couple defections, but but very few. We're, we're talking ones and twos at a time, certainly not units. You know, one of the things that probably keeps them banded together uh, is the reality that if they do not win, they will be held accountable. Um, it's very clear uh, uh, people have been able to document their abuses. And I think the, the leadership of those units uh, uh, can really... Uh, make a, a very compelling argument that if they do not prevail and 
you know, how they prevail is through uh, this uh, in an even more extreme interpretation of, of, of the four cut strategy to absolutely terrorize the uh, civilian population into submission. Um, but if they do not prevail, uh, there will be accountability for them. And I, am, I have no doubt that is something that motivates the leadership of those units. Absolutely. And so talking about leadership's motivations, um, when we're seeing you know, dividends not being paid out, when we're seeing uh, embargoes and sanctions against Myanmar and therefore industries, most of which are controlled directly or indirectly by the military and their friends, uh, the upper echelons, the general staff, they are losing large amounts of money on top of the fact that certain family members of the military have been indirectly targeted. They, they've lost opportunities for employment, for education, for international travel, and so on. What is the loyalty of the general staff like at the moment? Can we, can we hope for an internal uh, coup anytime soon? The... This is a very hard question. I, I mean, I have assumptions that I can make about this. Um, you can kind of assume that the inner circle around Menon Klang, So Win, are still making out like bandits and, and getting very rich from this coup. The question is the degree to which they are spreading that wealth and giving opportunities to control uh, natural resources or uh, be given sinecure in military-owned corporations or shares uh, in them. And that's just an unknown. Uh, I'm not sure we'll ever be able to know that. Um, it would make sense for the wealth to be shared fairly widely amongst the senior leadership. That is one of the ways that they've always been able to hold themselves together. And, you know, traditionally the Myanmar military has held together. There's not been a lot of, uh, of factionalism uh, that we've seen in other militaries in Southeast Asia. Um, now that said, the... SAC, uh, Minong Klang and So Win have already been purging the SAC of some of the, the uh, their leaders, some of the military leaders. I think there's a very palpable sense of uh, frustration that they are losing ground. Um, there are, you know, good estimates out there by different. Uh, 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 think tanks and, and groups that the EROs and the NUG together control around 50% of the country. And, and even if that's a little bit exaggerated, it's not significantly exaggerated. You know, Minong Klang's got to be very concerned that 19, uh, nearly 20 months since the coup, uh, the military has so little effective control over the country. And that frustration is borne out in the rotation of generals and the appointment of younger officers uh, to senior positions, knowing that that they owe their careers and their loyalty to Minong Klang. So, you know, when you start to see that, you start to wonder if the generals are starting to 
get as rich as they can while they can? Are they starting to get money out of the country to safe havens as much as they can to protect their family's long-term interests? Um, are they trying to get it out to the, the British Virgin Islands or, or the Cayman Islands or, or other tax havens? Um, are they starting to kind of build up their own, or how should I say this? Are they starting to think more about their exit pattern than they are about their operational responsibilities. Um, and again, it's a very hard thing to measure other than anecdotally. Mm. Nevertheless, uh, an- anecdotes add up uh, to become data. So I think, I think it's important to keep an eye on, on that, uh, that movement, the sort of rats off the sinking ship, as it were. And isn't this so? The, I mean, you you mentioned like this high rotation of general staff. Um, there have been other sort of fanatical leaders through history who've gone through this this uh, paranoia phase of let's get rid of the generals or not even generals. It could be political advisors, whatever. Stalin definitely comes to mind. Um, let's get rid of all the all the high ranking, skilled, capable people who've been doing this job for decades and decades and decades, and let's replace them with young fanatical loyalists. The problem is that typically young fanatical loyalists are not strategically skilled. They don't come with the same operational knowledge and capacity as the people that they're replacing. And fanaticism very often seems to be exclusive to to level-headed uh, stratagem. So does this does this indicate that the the high level decision making process of the Tamador is likely to be undermined and become significantly more erratic? I think that's exactly right. Um, you know it's going to get bad when there's going to be just an orgy of violence. You know when when the real hardliners, the Sowins, and these younger fanatics are in full control. Um, who have argued that the reason that they are losing ground is that they simply have been too restrained to date, uh, which is just insane because of the the violence perpetrated towards the civilian population is is absolutely egregious. Um, But that's their thinking. And you are going to see a purge within the ranks uh, across the military uh, when the senior leadership are demanding uh, things that cannot be achieved, right? They're going to demand uh, more territorial gains. They're going to demand uh, more victories. And, you know, the logistics network is overtaxed. Uh, helicopters are, you know, burned through spare parts that are increasingly in short supply. Um the forces, the units are operating at uh, undermanned staffs. And so the, the senior leadership are going to be making these demands on the, the, the kind of one-star generals, the colonels, and, and it's just unsustainable. Um, and they will start to be replaced uh, because they cannot uh, uh, achieve whether we agree with what what they are being asked to do. They're in a professional military manner. They're trying to execute the plan. Uh, 
And I think uh, when they fail to do so, you are going to see, you know, another round of purges. And I, I think you did a, a, made a very important point that it's not just in the officer corps. Right. We're already seeing some of the cronies of the military get arrested um, and, and people that have been close to the military before. And it, it strikes me as rather arbitrary and, and probably intentionally arbitrary just to keep everyone uh, nervous, uh, unsure of their uh, position amongst the leadership. Interesting. And so this this sort of leads into my next question uncertainty, right? Fear, uncertainty, and violence, not just violence, but violence that is shocking. This seems to be something that the military loves. They love to hit people when they don't know it's coming. They love to specifically target uh, IDP camps and refugee camps um, instead of actually going after legitimate military targets, even though they know those legitimate military targets. We saw just last week um, uh, an MI-35 uh, helicopter just strafed right through a school, murdering children indiscriminately. Uh, and of course, very famously, the execution of, of four um, revolutionary activists, which, the, you know, the first executions in the country since 1988. What is, what is the purpose of it? The military seems to love this. They seem to believe that this will have some sort of positive impact for their strategy. Are they expecting the people to just fold and collapse under the stress of, of fear? Or, or do, I don't understand this. Like, do they not understand that they've pushed the people beyond breaking point and now most of them literally do not care about the prospect of dying? Or, or what's, the, what's the game plan? Yeah, the military's counterinsurgency strategy, you know, going back multiple decades, is this four-cut strategy. And it's basically meant uh, to terrorize the civilian population into submission. Uh, it's trying to... Yeah, it, it's, it's basically uh, uh, threatening to kill, loot, target civilians... Um, conscript civilians into uh, porters uh, on, for frontline deployment, uh, the use of sexual violence on an organized fashion. All these different tactics were meant to basically convince civilian populations that, that it was not in their interest uh, to support ethnic resistance organizations predominantly at the time. Um, you know, th this is not a population-centric counterinsurgency strategy that we have seen employed in other countries by other militaries. There is no attempt to win hearts and minds. It is meant to terrorize. And that has been the military doctrine for decades. It is... Uh, 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 a campaign of terror. Now, what's fascinating about the current situation is it's not working. The people are not being cowed into submission. And I think from a military leadership position, that's got to confound them. I mean, it's, it's got to drive Menon Klang and So Win absolutely batshit um, that the population continues to resist the military. 
every day from from the north of the country to the south, from from you know the Rakhine to Ukraine, you have these people out there, flash mobs demonstrating against the, the junta, against a military that has shown repeatedly a willingness to gun them down. And they are just not cowed into submission. Um, the populations in the countryside continue to support uh, the NUG and their PDFs, um, which are largely funded by local donations. And, and there's kind of no better uh, uh, sign of popular uh, support for, for the NUG than people who are living very close to, to uh, the edge, the limits of their, their subsistence, uh, to give what little they have uh, to support the PDFs. And so I, I think the military just has to be frustrated beyond belief that nothing they do is working in terms of terrorizing the population. It's always worked before. And this time, it's not. And you see them lash out in terms of these indiscriminate artillery attacks on villages. Um, or you mentioned this heinous attack uh, late last week of a military helicopter using uh, its 30-millimeter cannons you know, th these are weapons used to destroy uh, armored personnel carriers and, and vehicles, and they're using it on a temple school against children. I, it, it's just horrific, and, and I think they're trying to signal that there is no limit uh, to what they're willing to do uh, in order to try to sow that terror back in, in the, the mind's of the people. I mean, I'm like I hear what you're saying, but even the words coming out of your mouth are confusing to me. You say it's always worked before. I I don't think the military understand the meaning of the word before. You know, I've spoken to people from from ethnic regions as I'm certain you have as well. The 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 things these people have experienced, people even of my age or younger have experienced, you know, death squads coming to their village and having to hide in the jungle. I've spoken to, to someone from Chin who, who said that the military used to periodically besiege their village and cut off food supply. And she's been close to death from starvation. And so she just doesn't care about dying anymore. Like she, she knows what it feels like. She's okay with it. This is, this is what the military have created, especially in the ethnic minority regions over the last 60 years. And if we look at history, we can look at you know, ISIS. Terrorism did not bring them a lot of friends. We can look at the IRA, particularly once the IRA started targeting civilians. The, the hearts of the British hardened against the separatist cause in Northern Ireland because, of course they did, because now these people stopped being legitimate political actors who have a legitimate gripe with the British military and a British government and have now become terrorists who are trying to murder innocent British children, and therefore they are criminals and therefore they must be stopped, and the British are willing to take what they have to take in order to eliminate them. Uh, we saw similar tactics fail for, for the ETA in Basque. 
these terrorism tactics do not historically seem to work out well long term. They, they harden the hearts of the civilian population against these groups, and they are willing to entrench and suffer even greater pain in order to eliminate them, in order to see justice done. Am I unfairly characterizing the, the history of terrorism here or, or what's happening? No, I, I don't think you are. And I think in certain contexts, in certain societies, you're absolutely correct. In others, maybe less so. And let me reference one uh, uh, work. It was a strategy document uh, written by someone within Al-Qaeda who was very critical of Osama bin Laden. Uh, it was written by Abu Bakr Naji, and it was called The Management of Savagery. And it would go on to become the founding ideal ideological document of the Islamic State. And basically, what the management of savagery uh, argued is that the organization should terrorize the population to such a degree and cause such horrific loss of life and bloodshed that the people at some point will settle for that form of government that the group was trying to impose. However bad it was, at least there's some degree of stability. It it's, could be brutal Sharia law, but at some point people would say, at least there is some degree of peace uh, and we can get on with rebuilding our lives. And I think that's probably closer to the Tatmadaw mindset in this, uh, that they believe that they can go out and terrorize these populations. And you were really accurate when you say at some point, especially in some of the re regions you know, dominated by the ethnic minorities, it's been constant war. It's never not been before. And, and you were right to kind of critique me and say, there was no before. This has been ongoing for 60 years. And in certain regions, you were absolutely correct. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's an interesting sort of dual perspective on on this. And I suppose, I, I suppose the really big difference is that the military are not accustomed to having to whip the Bama majority into line. I mean, thus far, historically, it seems that the comparative peace that the central region has enjoyed and a very, very, very heavy diet of pro-military propaganda and the demonization of ethnic minority forces seems to have secured uh, all the support that the military needs. That and apathy. That, that's the other big thing I've seen from the Bama majority is, yeah, I'm sure the military is doing bad things, but you know, I don't know what's going on. They know better than I do. I'll, I'll just leave it be. Um, and now everything's come out. And now everyone's, you know, I've, I've heard Bama people turning around going, we were wrong. We were wrong to ignore the concerns of the, of the Rohingya. We were wrong to ignore the concerns of the Kachin. We were wrong to ignore, you know, the Karen. Because when they said the military burned down their villages and we said, that's not possible, the military doesn't do that, uh, we were wrong. And and now we've seen firsthand what these people are capable of. And, and you know, it's there's definitely a reckoning. Um, and so speaking on that, I want to know, is there any difference as far as the Tamadol's effectiveness in fighting between the predominantly mountainous, um, cold, dry sort of regions on the east and the west, uh, where where a lot of the fighting has historically taken place, Kachin, Shankaran, you know, Chin and Rakhine, versus fighting in places like Sagaing, which are Bama-dominated and mostly flat? 
Yeah, no, it's it's completely new for them. And and you identified it very effectively when you said they've never had to fight in these regions before. They could always count on uh, the at least the passive support of the population. Um, the, the war was not being waged there. And they never had to worry about their uh, logistics network uh, being targeted in those regions. And, and that's different now. You have ethnic Bama-dominated PDFs that are taking the fight to the Tatmadaw. Uh, they are targeting the Tatmadaw's uh, logistics network, supply network, which is you know, in some regions has been decimated. They're very hard hit and, and running low on, on supplies. Um, so I, I think this is a very new thing for the military. I think they're completely taken aback by it and, and don't understand it, what's happened. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of, on the one hand, sad that it's taken the Bama majority so long to appreciate what what the ethnic minorities have been going through for for six decades but but at least they are now and and you know as we start to think towards an end game what a post conflict post coup Myanmar looks like one would hope and again I, I'm putting a uh, Hope is doing a lot of lifting here. Um, but one would hope that the NUG and whoever they are working with to create a new constitutional order appreciate the suffering that the EROs and the, the ethnic minority regions have, have been going through for, for decades and will really try to accommodate them through a meaningful uh, autonomy, a meaningful power-sharing, revenue-sharing agreement uh, that addresses their core grievances. I mean, yes, the, the, the word hope is definitely doing a lot of heavy lifting in that, but it's, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot to discuss within that. And I think that one we might better leave for another uh, discussion because there is an entire wealth of context that, that needs to be provided when we jump into that topic. Um, but the point is very well taken. But I want to segue to a different question now. The question is of, of the military's waning capacity. And this is not so much a question of morale. This is a question of materiel. <clears throat> you, you mentioned things like helicopter parts being in short supply. My understanding is many of the helicopters that the Tamado operate come from Russia and Russia being engaged in conflict in Ukraine where their own efforts have become so desperate that uh, by the reports I've seen, they've started literally emptying prisons and, and commuting sentences for murderers in exchange for military service on the Ukrainian front. Are the Russians likely to continue supplying these much needed resources to the Burmese military? Um, that's, one would assume so, right? The losses of the Russians uh, since February this year are, are absolutely astounding in terms of, you know, they've lost close to 200 uh, uh, jet fighters. They've expended their, uh, a lot of their 
short-range missiles. They're cruise missiles. Uh, they have lost thousands of tanks and, and uh, howitzers and, and pieces of artillery and uh, uh, multiple launch rocket systems. They've lost radar units. Um, the losses are absolutely astounding, not even talking about the, the personal losses and, and the, those captured uh, and taken prisoners of war. But just look at the material losses. Uh, the Russian military is really hard-pressed. And if you start to think about their ability to reconstitute and recapitalize their forces, especially under such enormous international sanctions, and here, you know, the financial sanctions against Russia don't <laughs> matter quite as much to them simply because they make so much money, $150 million a week from oil and gas sales. Uh Right. But but the actual trade sanctions, um, all the high-end machine tools, the precision cutter heads that they need for their military equipment uh, are imported from Europe. Uh, all of their semiconductors are imported from uh, uh, either Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, the United States, one-third of them come from China, one-third from Southeast Asia, but they're totally dependent on those parts. And so one would say, look, given their pressing needs to recapitalize their forces, are they going to prioritize third-rate clients like the Myanmar military? Um, I largely assumed no, that, that Myanmar would be a very low priority. And yet, the other day when Menon Klang was in Russia, he was touring a uh, Sukhoi factory um, and, you know, being shown the, the four, you know, SU-30s, I believe it was, that are going to be shipped, uh, that Myanmar has already purchased, they have already taken delivery of two of them, and that these four are, are ready for delivery. So I, I am hopeful that many of these spare parts, um, some of the uh, higher-end uh, ammunition that the Myanmar military's defense industries are unable to produce indigenously, that they will be in shorter supply. But there are some things that are still in the pipeline. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's really shameful that, that this is being allowed to so, happen. The other thing with, with air power, like, I mean, the military has a lot of air power, as we've seen, that the, the attack helicopters um, are definitely a, a huge thorn in the side of the uh, the ethnic groups. And, uh, and of course, the bombing, you know, the, the aerial bombardment, there's absolutely no defense capability against that. But one thing that interests me is we haven't heard a lot about drones, and I happen to know that the Burmese military some while ago ordered a consignment of, I think, 24 uh, drones from uh, from China. Is, I mean, are these, are they, like, are they, are they likely to be not using the drones for some sort of reason, or are they just surveillance drones, or do they just not have the capacity to utilize these? Do we know? Um, I am not sure whether they're simply surveillance drones or they have uh, been able to purchase 
uh, the drones that are armed? And even if they are, have they had sufficient training on those platforms? You know, it's not something that you simply take delivery of and start using. Um, so that I, I really don't know and cannot answer for you. Let's just go back to some of the other aerial assets. Yes, they, they do have their, their uh, fighters, uh, jets, and it's, it's not a small fleet. Um, but remember, they're also using gravity bombs. Uh, they're not using precision-guided munitions, which does limit their efficacy. Again, they're used to terrorize the population, but they don't necessarily have great battlefield utility. The helicopters are probably a much greater threat to the NUG and the EROs, um, simply because these gunships carry such an incredible amount of firepower in terms of high uh, caliber machine guns, the, the cannons that they use, uh, the, the rockets uh, that they are armed with. Um, and the reality is a lot of those munitions are able to be produced indigenously by the military in their defense industries. So to me, those are a much greater threat than, than the jet fighters, even though the, the generals probably care much more about the, the prestige of, of high-end Soviet SU-30s. Um, from a military point of view, the helicopters are, are a much greater threat to the PDFs and the EROs. Um, now that said, I know the NUG and their PDFs and some uh, are, are, have, you know, lamented that they do not have any anti-aircraft capabilities. Um, some EROs do, the WA. Uh, have some uh, man pads, shoulder launch surface to air missiles. Uh, those so far have not entered into the black market space, uh, but they could one day. Um, the one thing that I would encourage, and, and I know this sounds really dumb, but the best way to target aerial assets is on the ground. Uh, you know, it's it's when they are parked. Uh, it doesn't take a lot to destroy or make a helicopter uh, uh, unflyable. And the other thing is that they're all dependent on aviation jet fuel. And so there really needs to be a concerted push to target any uh, tanker going near an airbase. Uh, you know, without jet fuel, those things do not fly. And that should have been a priority from day one. You can ground a force if they do not have the right fuel. Is there a, is there a shortage of, of jet fuel in Myanmar? We've, we've heard sporadic reports of difficulties in securing uh, jet fuel. Is that realistic or can they produce that locally? Uh, I do not believe they have the capacity to produce it. Unfortunately, India and Singapore and some other countries have been willing to supply it. And so this being jet fuel, it would have to come by by sea? Generally, like this would come in through the port? Uh, by sea or overland from India. Um, mm. So it, it and, and then it has to be trucked up to some of the forward Air bases, so you know, outside of Naypyidaw, uh, outside of Mandalay uh, in Saigang, uh, you do have these forward air bases. Um, that really needs to be a tactical mm. priority. So, that, but, I mean, if it's coming over land from India, 
surely that means that the pipeline would have to go through all the trucks, whatever it may be, would have to go through ERO control territory. Yes, and and I think that's why you see such incredible violence in uh, in the Chin states in parts of Saigang uh, to control those communications. Ah, I see. Okay, that starts to make a little bit more sense now. So, okay, so there's a limitation on fuel and presumably a limitation on on parts. Do we have any understanding of what this this fleet was, the helicopter fleet was like, and how it's faring? today compared to that? Has there been a decline? Um, what my sources on the ground have been telling me is that they can see these helicopters being used in certain regions for certain periods of the day. So they don't have nighttime uh, capacity. They're, they're not equipped with night vision goggles. Uh, there are limits to what they can do in terms of uh, uh, inclement weather in their flying. Um, during different operations, you know, they you can put, depending on the, the airframe, you know, f- between 15 and probably 25 troops in them. So are they being used for kinetic operations to target uh you know, NUG or the PDFs or the EROs, or are they being used at more in a logistics capacity to ferry those light infantry division uh, combatants from battle space to battle space? So we we've need to understand that there, there are a limited number of those helicopters and they're being utilized in, in different fashions. Interesting. And how are we looking for ammunition? I mean, I, I presume that ammunition can be produced in reasonably large quantities domestically, um, but artillery shells presumably are a little bit more complicated. Um, all of the ammunition requires multiple chemicals and components and brass casings. Um, many things go into the production of uh ammunition and and arms. Um, The military has a large defense industries uh, base, um, and it's spread out throughout the country. We don't know really how well they're operating right now. They, too, are subject to uh, the weakened chat they are subject to all sorts of, you know, the incompetence of the economic management, uh, the breakdown in foreign trade, because a lot of the, the chemicals and components are imported. So I think we could assume that those defense industries are not operating at a full tempo. Okay. So are we seeing any changes in tactics or behavior on the ground in response to these? Like, can we measure uh, the, the the impact that uh, shortages of material have had on the actual troops on the ground? So one thing that I've been paying attention to, uh, or there are a couple of things I've been paying attention to. 
first when I'm reading reports about artillery fire in Chin State or Saigang or, or other regions, what's really interesting is actually how restrained it is. You might get two or three uh, shells into a village, but no more. So that to me tells me that they're actually concerned about uh, the number of of munitions that they have at their disposal and frontline troops are not confident of the military's ability to resupply them. Another thing that I would look for is, you know, if you pay attention in just the the media, you know, all the different EROs and PDFs are trying to show pictures on a daily basis of, you know, people, military troops they've captured, equipment they've captured, troops they've killed, and sending in photographs. And I spend a a, a lot of time actually pouring over those photographs, looking at the the quality and age and condition of the weapons, uh, looking at the ammunition. And even with some of the uh, people and uh, takes they've had from the light infantry divisions, the better armed, the better equipped, the better trained units, it's incredible kind of the condition and quality and amount of ammunition and the quality of the kit they're deployed with is, is really quite surprising, uh, uh, shockingly low. The other thing that I would look for, again, is that the degree to which the military is being uh, utilizing their militias um, and trying to impress them into service. Uh, That, to me, shows that there are real limits in terms of their uh, capabilities and uh, 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 manpower resources. Uh, and again, the, whenever a military is is turning to militias, you know it's either it's it's a sign of their own weakness, but it's also um, means that the gloves are coming off because those militias tend to operate with far greater impunity and a willingness to target civilian populations. They, they just feel that they are going to be much less accountable. So let me play devil's advocate for, for a moment then. When we look at the militia, Pusati definitely come to mind. Uh, the blood drinkers, because of course they have to have names like this. Why would they not? Um, you know, they, they are definitely vicious, but can we make the argument? Uh, is, is it possible that these are just independent uh, citizens who truly believe in the mission of the military, who are trying to do their part to undermine PDF operations in places where the military uh, cannot operate because you know civilian casualties would simply be too high in densely packed urban areas? Like, is there any way to to argue that this is not the military? desperately reaching out to civilians that even they weren't able to force into service uh, to get them to just, you know, do the dirty work for them. Um, I think that's a very fair point, and it's it's one of those unknowables. Um, to what degree are some of these militias directly controlled by the military? To what degree are they um, controlled by veterans of the military who are now ensconced in local communities as village chiefs uh, who uh, or or as you know people that run and administer military owned businesses um, and who feel that their uh, 
long-term political and economic fortunes are tied to the military um, and have a vested interest in the military succeeding. So I I don't disagree with you and, and you know, you're plain devil's advocate on this one because I, I think you're probably correct. And I just don't think there's any way that we could uh, Very know fair. that. So, okay, so having discussed all of the range of different factors, the material losses, the morale losses, um, you know, the financial uh, elements of this, what... <sighs> What losses are the military actually facing in terms of personnel? Like to date, we've been at this conflict for a year and a half now, a little bit more actually. Um, so how, how bad are the military's losses looking? I can, I can tell you, I can say that The NUG is claiming that the military has lost about 20,000 troops, which, based on my estimates of the trigger pullers, the people, you know, not in rear logistics positions, but or headquarters, you know, is around 10% of the, the military force. I think that's a very high estimate. Um, 10% losses would, would be very large. One of the things that traditionally militaries around the world calculate is that the number of wounded is usually three times the number of killed. So if you're talking about... Uh, you know, 10%, 20,000 losses, then you'd be 60,000 wounded. And and those estimates just seem very high to me. And, and knowing what I do know about um, the lack of battlefield medicine and the ability to get people off the battlefield, what, what um, in the military they refer to as the golden hour, right? That, that first hour of getting a wounded combatant off the field into um, a place where they can triage and, and save the life. You know, that's probably very low in Myanmar, very low indeed. Um, so I don't know what the losses are. You know, I, I read the reports, but uh, you know, that come out in in the open source media every day about you know seven here, eight there. In general, I tend to believe uh, show me the pics or it doesn't exist. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, for the morale of the EROs, for the morale of the PDFs. I think there is a. a people have inflated the casualty numbers. Now that said, I don't think overall in terms of killed and wounded and defections, um, I think a, a very fair estimate is probably about 15% losses. And um, while that's not unsustainable, it's 
hard to replace. And earlier in the podcast, I was talking about the military still has the power to conscript people. Um, We don't know how well the post-conscription training is going. Um, It's a question that uh, Russia watchers are are kind of asking right now as uh, Putin announced his mobilization of 300,000 people uh, yesterday. Um, I think that would be a very similar question you could ask in Myanmar. Um, Are they going through a basic training? Uh, What how much training are they getting uh, or are they simply being told this is how you load a gun um, and deploy them? Um, and, and that's, you know, a very different fighting force. Um, so, you know, overall, when we look at militaries, we look at both the material factor and the moral factor. And I, I think, without a doubt, uh, the Tatmadaw is is wanting on both of those counts. The degree to which, I don't know, but uh, it's very clearly uh, 19, 20 months into this, the war is not going the way they uh, thought it would. Absolutely. And so... I just want to double check it. So you're saying 15% total losses across the entire armed forces. Um, that includes... Well, I, I would say 15% amongst the deployed combatants. Oh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm not saying 15% of 400,000. I'm, I'm probably saying 15% of 200,000, 225,000. Right. And so... That, see, that's significantly more impactful. Um, and so the, the point that I want to check there is if we're losing, uh, I, I assume we'd be seeing higher losses on people who are not frontline combatants, people who are supply train, uh, transportation, and, and, and things along uh, these lines. My understanding is it's easier for them to slip away. It's easier for them to defect. Um, can, we, can we wind up in a situation where you have you know, say 5,000 men ready to go and you simply don't have the trucks to get them from point A to point B? Can we sort of neutralize an army in that way? Absolutely. And again, Myanmar is a large country. I I, I don't think people really appreciate the size of it, the differing topographies of it, the multiple fronts that the military is fighting on, and just how crappy the road network is. It's a very unsophisticated uh, physical infrastructure to move people around. And so when you do have these vulnerable supply lines that you know used to be uh, completely safe for the military, um, we see them uh, increasingly dependent on moving men and equipment by rivers because the roads are just not safe enough. And, you know, in, in many cases, the PDFs cannot target. They don't have the range to effectively target uh, uh, riverine ships. Sometimes they do, and and they deserve credit for for going after those logistic networks. I think it's absolutely incumbent on the PDFs right now and the EROs to not fight the military, but to fight the military's ability to wage war. They have to concentrate on the uh, increasingly depleted logistics network. Um, and if they don't, you know, they just cannot fight the military 
on the military's grounds because those light infantry divisions, as you mentioned, are psychotic. They are better armed. They have better mobility. And so the PDFs really have to focus on fighting the military's ability to wage war. I, I really do applaud the NUG and the determination and the courage of their PDFs and the fairly durable, not, not perfect, but, but alliance and working relationship with the different EROs. They've achieved much more on the battlefield than I think anyone would have predicted in September 2021 when they declared the start of their defensive war. You know, the general assumption was these guys are going to get mowed down and massacred. And, and they've really done a much better job. And, and that speaks to the intangibles, the morale out there, uh, not just the, the material. That said, I'm concerned about their ability to sustain this over the long run. And conversely, the other side of the coin is, despite the losses that the military has suffered and, and the setbacks and kind of where they are 19, 20 months into this. Um, at some point, the military and the government have these advantages, right? They have the ability to conscript. They have foreign allies that will bankroll them. Russia will bankroll them. China uh, will probably bankroll them. They're able to get sufficient support from India. Um, they have defense industries. They have the ability to import material. Uh, they have been the beneficiary of the fact that the international community has really done very little to punish them and sanction them. Uh, they have uh, seniorage. They have the ability to, uh, uh, you know, get foreign investment should, should foreign investors come in. So they have these inherent advantages. And, you know, in the long run, I, I do worry uh, that, that that gives them uh, certain uh, advantages. At some point, the NUG and their PDFs will hit limits in their logistical networks. Uh, their real vulnerability will always be that alliance between them and the different EROs. And we know that the generals Napadaw are constantly courting these EROs. They're bringing them up for peace talks. And at some point, they will start to peel off some of that network. And so while the NUG has done a very admirable job, you always should worry about what happens when the conflict becomes more protracted. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the current situation is in Myanmar. We're doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. 
And please also consider letting them know that there's now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable, and to those who are especially impacted by the military's organized state terror. Any donations given to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, will go towards those vulnerable communities being impacted by the coup. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.